0: I'm Jane Mulcahy and you're listening to Law and Justice. It's the second show It's going to be broadcasting every two weeks. And today I'm joined in studio by Kim Thomas. We have a very uh, wide-ranging show. Kim is going to tell us a bit about herself and her research interests. We'll have a segment on the optional protocol to the prevention of torture, which Ireland signed 10 years ago but has not ratified yet. And I interviewed Professor Malcolm Evans about that at the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission yesterday. We'll also have a segment with Deirdre Kelleher about cohabitees and we'll have a piece uh, with Maura Butler on Brexit. So a very full show for you folks. I'm joined now in studio by Kim Thomas. Hi Kim, thanks for coming in to talk to me.
1: Hi Jane, so glad to be here.
0: How are you? Maybe you can tell us a bit about yourself, Kim. So
1: I'm a Fulbright Scholar and I'm being hosted at the UCC School of Law for this semester. I'm normally a professor of law in the United States at the University of Michigan Law School. Great, Kim. And maybe you can tell us a bit about what being a Fulbright Scholar means. Well, the Fulbright Program is an international exchange program and so scholars, uh, both professors and students come from the US to other countries and as well as students and faculty from Ireland go to the United States. And how long will
0: you be here at the UCC Law School? Just until December. Okay, so so a kind of three-month period, a semester I guess. That's right. You said you teach in Michigan, what's the name of the law school? University of Michigan Law School. Okay, and what's your own particular area of expertise, Kim?
1: So, my area of expertise is criminal law and juvenile justice, and I teach a lot in um, what are called clinics. So, in the United States, law school is a graduate degree-only program, and so students come... Uh, during the time that they're in law school and uh, take a clinic in order to really um, get a sense of how the theory that they've been learning in, during their academic career fits into the practice. And so the kinds of things that uh, students might do uh, would be to represent a young person in children's court, wow. um, but under my supervision, okay. and to really think about how um, their uh, what they've learned in their academic courses applies in the world and how to think about those professional experiences while they're still in law
0: school. Fascinating. What a great experience. And would those classes, those clinics be pretty small or would they be, you know, 100 plus people? I presume small.
1: They're very small. So normally we would only take eight students to one faculty member. And so it's a very intense uh, experience for the students, um, both working with real clients in the real world.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of uh, a lot of hard work for them. And so you would then be mentoring them, I suppose, and guiding and advising them and that's steering right. them in the right direction or away from the, the wrong direction. Um, so what particular aspects of juvenile justice? I mean, that's quite a, a big area. Are there particular aspects or particularly interesting cases that you've litigated recently with those students or separately?
1: Yes. Yeah, so my um, my particular interest is in sentencing, both for adults and for children. And uh, an area right now that is both in practice and in academic, my focus is the sentencing of children to very lengthy sentences. Okay, And so uh, the the U.S. Supreme Court has said as a constitutional matter that children are constitutionally different for purposes of sentencing than adults, that we have to take into account their youth when sentencing children. And so there are a lot of questions that come out of that about what that means as a matter of our constitutional law. Um, Most uh, prominently, the court, of course, banned the death penalty for children and then, more recently, uh, has said that you can't automatically give life without parole to children. Um, and so, the question of how that's implemented and what children are eligible to receive that most extreme sentence uh, is is the focus of my work right now.
0: And I presume in the states, um, what it actually constitutes a child might differ from state to state. The threshold, or is it standard across all the states?
1: Um, the As a matter of constitutional law, the threshold is under 18. Okay. Um, So even if states define... It's somewhat differently uh, as to who could be prosecuted in an adult criminal court. Uh, the US Supreme Court has said that anyone, like under international law, uh,
0: under 18
1: would be a child, considered okay. a child.
0: And so in looking at lengthy sentences for children, I presume they'd be the more egregious types of crimes that they have been convicted of, so murder, rape, that type of thing? That's
1: right. So uh, under our law, the only sentence, that, the only crime that would be eligible for a life without parole sentence would be a homicide okay um, and so that sentence would be completely banned for for a non homicide offense um, on the other hand there's quite a range of crimes that occur under the the band of homicide and so mm-hmm. uh, we have a, a in many states and in the state that i 'm in Michigan has a, a quite permissive uh accessory law, and so you wouldn 't have to be the person who's mm-hmm. actually committing the offense mm. uh, if you 're somehow assisting that mm. offense uh, yeah. or assisting in the robbery that leads or to felony murder, that That's type right. of thing yeah exactly yeah. and so uh, some people do get quite caught up in uh, what they don 't anticipate to be homicides okay
0: it 's fr- kind of frightening and um so what are some of the challenges of juvenile justice and criminal justice in the United States then, Kim?
1: Really, so, uh, so the, my focus is looking at um, the implementation of, of thinking about how children are con- different constitutionally for purposes of sentencing. And so if, if we're going to continue to have the sentence of life without parole for children, um, we have to ask, um, how could that uh, decision be fairly implemented? Uh, So the U.S. Supreme Court has said that only children who are irreparably corrupt or somehow have demonstrated that they can't be rehabilitated uh, could even be constitutionally eligible for that sentence. And of course, that's a a really uh, hard question and perhaps not an answerable question as a Mm -hmm. matter of development, um, since we know that children, when they're under 18 actually are not completely developed and so it's um it's hard to know how you would determine whether a child would be irreparably corrupt when they're
2: 17 or under
1: Uh, and and so states have to go about thinking about that as a matter of law and implementing procedures that uh both are are fair and rational, and that take into account um, the development of children, mm.
0: and that's that's a pretty tall order. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting because here uh, in Ireland, there's a lot of focus now on trying to develop specific measures in prison for eighteen to twenty-four year olds mm-hmm. because the actual brain science is that you can be developing until you're twenty-five. That's right. So um, it's interesting that you can be deemed irreparably corrupt, you know, before you turn eighteen, and in that way. And Kim, who are you teaching with or working with here at UCC? So here at UCC, I'm working
1: with the dean of the law school, Ursula Kelly. And she and I are teaching the graduate juvenile justice course. And so that's a, uh, a graduate course that many of the students in that are doing the LLM in child and family law, which is, of course, a wonderful experience for me uh, to teach in that course because the students are quite uh, engaged mm. with the topic and they've specifically uh, come to do the LLM here in that program. And so it's so really, they come prepared they and come full of quite questions prepared <laughs> okay. and very engaged. Yeah. So that's been wonderful.
0: Well, they must find it very interesting having your American perspective, you know, uh, and just just hearing the type of issues that are coming before your constitutional courts. Um, And uh, why did you decide to come to UCC?
1: Um, I um, I really admire the work of Professor or Dean Kilkelly. Mm. Um, she's such an international leader in youth justice, and so the opportunity to work with her has been has been wonderful. And also um, the other colleagues there um, mm. in the Child and Family Law Program are are really great colleagues yeah. uh, to to learn from, and so that's been uh, wonderful. The uh, the comparative work is also quite engaging. Mm. Um, so while You know, there are unique problems and sort of challenges with youth justice in every country. Um, Thinking about how a common law system that does share some um, attempts to balance a welfare perspective but also uh, achieve sort of accountability, Mm -hmm. um, how that looks in a different setting and the different choices that are made. And it's very informative for my for my own work.
0: And how do we strike you in Ireland? Uh, w- would we seem, by comparison, with um, American jurisdictions, softer or more? Uh, do we have more of a child rights focus here than um, in the states, or is is that impossible to say?
1: Uh, I, I think, on the whole, um, the the UK and the US are sort of seen as the less child rights focused uh, jurisdictions. Um, Ireland has, uh, you know, uh, within the past 20 years, really thought through their youth justice system in the Children's Act 2001, which, of course, mm-hmm. hasn't, uh, you know, been implemented for that long. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really um, wonderful moment to be here, to have seen, to, to see what that thought process was and to be in a jurisdiction that's taken account of both uh, the European community, uh, guidance and uh, international norms, as well as its own its national um, priorities.
0: Okay, Kim, thanks. And um, uh, do you, uh, on a completely unrelated topic, um, how are you spending your free time in Ireland? Uh, you know, are, are you in- engaging with festivals or, you know, cultural pursuits or sports? So, uh, so I'm quite a runner. Okay. Um,
1: so I am... Um I, I did the mini
0: marathon. Oh, good. And that
1: good was for amazing. you. Yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed. It was just such a, a wonderful experience to see so many people running for yeah, charity. Yeah. Um, and then I'm signed up for the Dublin Marathon. Okay. So the full, the, the full the, the, marathon. The, the yeah, full yeah. whammy.
0: Okay. The, wow. non, the non-mini version. Okay. Right. Have you done full marathons before? <laughs> I have. Yeah. So this, Good for you. Be wonderful. Healthy body, healthy mind. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> channel the focus. Well, look, Kim, thank you so much for coming in to talk uh, to Law and Justice. And I hope the rest of your time here at UCC Law and in Cork is really enjoyable and fruitful and wish you well with your research thank you much so much for having me on justice. And I'm Jane Mulcahy. That was great with Kim Thomas. Always very interesting to get an international perspective on the type of issues that are pressing in the American context and how our own system, our own juvenile justice system appears to outside eyes. And the next piece we're going to have is a segment on the optional protocol to the UN Convention Against Torture. Yesterday was the 10 year anniversary of the Irish state signing the optional protocol to the prevention of torture or the opcat. Um, Ten years later we still haven't ratified it and we are therefore not bound by its provisions yet. Uh, At the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission yesterday a report was launched authored by Professor Rachel Murray and Dr Alina Steinert called Ireland and the optional protocol to the UN Convention Against Torture. It sets out a few options that there are for Ireland in terms of how it might set up a national preventive mechanism which is an internal inspection body that would be responsible for visiting places of detention anywhere where people are deprived of their liberty so prisons, guard stations which currently, shockingly are not subject to any form of independent inspection. Also covered would be places like uh, nursing homes or congregated care settings for the elderly or people with with intellectual disabilities, direct provision centres could be subject to inspection because people are not actually free to go. Um, their, Their liberty is constrained. And so the next segment is with Professor Malcolm Evans, who is the chair of the subcommittee for the prevention of torture. And he told me why he thinks it is high time that Ireland ratified the optional protocol to the UN Convention Against Torture.
3: Hello, my name is Malcolm Evans. I'm Professor of International Law at the University of Bristol, but I'm also a member of and chair of the United Nations Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture.
0: And can you tell me, Professor Evans, what actually is the Subcommittee for the Prevention of Torture?
3: The SBT is the body um, established under the Optional Protocol to the UN Convention Against Torture. It comprises 25 independent experts elected from among the now nearly 85 countries of the world which are a party to that instrument. And what we do is literally go around the world visiting places where people may be deprived of their liberty on the basis of public decision making.
0: And so this event today here at the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission is about the ratification of the OPCAT and the need to set up a national preventive mechanism. Do you think it's very important that Ireland ratifies the OPCAT immediately, Professor Evans? And why is this so important that we do it at this juncture?
3: Well, the importance is, to me, self-evident. We are talking about putting in place effective mechanisms that can prevent people being subjected to torture but also any form of inhuman or degrading treatment whilst they are in places where they are not free to leave on the basis of public decision making. And so to ensure that there are appropriate safeguards and protections in place for such people is hugely important. Uh, Ireland first signed the convention now 10 years ago back in 2007 but signing does not make you legally banned or a party to the instrument that requires ratification and for 10 years Ireland has been looking at how and when it m- will be appropriate for it to ratify and personally I would take the view that 10 years is quite long enough for it to have come to a view on this.
0: So clearly prisons and police stations are subject or should be subject to inspection as places where people can be deprived of their liberty what other places might be subject to inspection by the National Preventive Mechanism or by yourselves the SPT under this
3: well in fact the list is almost endless and the key is not so much thinking about it in terms of ...formal places where people are detained or deprived of their liberty, but thinking about it in a much more open textured fashion about the sort of places where people might be, as we always keep stressing, our mandate and that of any national mechanism which is meant to operate in the same way as we as the International Committee do, does... Our mandate extends to any place where we may believe that persons may be deprived on this basis. So, in some countries that we visit, we are told, well, you can't go there, it's not a prison, it's not a police station, to which we say, it really doesn't matter. It could be a lock-up garage if we think that some people are being detained there because the state has put them there or authorized their being held there. Indeed, in some countries, we know that others and some national mechanisms have discovered, you know, just commercial warehouses where people have been detained on on this basis in some countries we have gone into um, what are on the face of it private premises but which in fact are being used by the authorities to detain people in in secret places secret dungeons etc etc so the mandate follows the fact of deprivation of liberty and that can be in one of a huge range of different settings
0: so would people being deprived of their liberty at airports or in nursing homes or perhaps in, in the Irish context in direct provision centres, would they fall within the mandate of the OPCAT and MPM and SPT?
3: The easy way to think about it is in these terms. Is the person free to leave? If the person can turn round and say, I don't want to be here anymore, I've had enough, I am leaving, then they are free to leave. If they are not free to leave in the sense that if they say that they wish to do so and they are prevented by an official from doing so and they are not free to leave, they are in a form of detention as far as we are concerned. When understood in that way, you can easily see that a very broad range of places fall into view, clearly. Um, in airports where people are being held either not being permitted to enter the country but particularly where they're being held before they may be being removed from a country they are being deprived of their liberty Um you will be amazed at the number of places where such things take place. In many countries you will find that there are in effect de facto holding centres in many shopping centres where people may be held for shoplifting are allowed to be held for short periods of time. Railway stations um, will, will often have places in some countries where there is such international travel. We ourselves keep discovering new forms of places where de facto people are being deprived of their liberty. But you also mention some very important other ones which are much more well known but sometimes Sometimes do get overlooked hospitals for example can often be places where people are are denied of their liberty not because they are being deliberately detained or necessarily ill-treated as such but because they are places where people can be held often by v- virtue of legal provisions for forms of compulsory treatment um, because of certain conditions that they may have, that then means that for these purposes they become places of detention. Many uh, social care homes in numerous countries de facto are places where people are deprived of their liberty for if they attempt to leave for whatever reason they will be restrained or detained by the staff and may be locked up in their rooms to prevent them doing so. If such places are operating under state registrations state license then that seems to make them a potential candidate for inclusion in the list of places of deprivation of liberty and so the list goes on
0: and so what would you be hoping for from from this event today professor evans do you hope and expect that ireland is close to ratification or that you can offer some words of persuasion to them at this critical point in time
3: i hope so uh, Ireland wholly properly is very concerned to ensure that when it becomes a party it fulfills its obligations in one sense this is hugely laudable it shows that it is taking its responsibility seriously and doesn't want to commit to an instrument and a mechanism that it doesn't feel able to deliver on that is is very good and i commend it for that commitment to what opcat is and for what it says about its um, attitude towards international law What would be most helpful now is, in my view, is that if Ireland were to grasp the moment, to become a party to the instrument, it knows a great deal about what should be done. It has got a great willingness, in my view, to do it. It's hesitations about how best it can be done can be, by view, best resolved in practice, working together with ourselves on the International Committee. One of our roles is to help states who are parties to do this well, and we will be only too happy to work alongside Ireland to ensure that it does it as well as it possibly can. But we cannot work in partnership like that unless it becomes a party, so I would urge them to do so, that together we can put in place what is necessary to make success of this instrument.
0: This is Law and Justice. I'm Jane Mulcahy and Deirdre Kelleher joins me now to discuss cohabitees. Hi Deirdre. Hey Jane, how are you doing? I'm great and you? I'm
4: not bad, thank you very much.
0: Thanks so much for coming in. Deirdre, you've been researching Cohabitees. Yeah so I'm just after finishing the
4: um, child and family LLM below in the school of Law I was uh, doing it over p- part-time over two years for the last couple of years so uh, the grand finale just recently was the dissertation submission at the in the middle of September So my topic for the dissertation was the rights of cohabitants in Ireland versus as against for example people who are married or um, people who are getting divorced versus you know, people whose relationship breaks down where they
0: are not actually married. Okay. So I was calling them cohabitees. Is is there... it's is is that just preference?
4: Yeah, it's interchangeable. The, the Act would call them cohabitants,
0: all right. Okay. But over the years, the literature has made Referred various, to both. Okay. various, references. So to it's not research. a majorly mortifying faux pas. Not even okay slightly, no. <laughs> Okay. So cohabitants then. Um, what are the key differences between uh, their legal status or their rights and those of married people?
4: Okay, well, this was... in. In a, nutshell. in a nutshell what it comes down to is in Ireland we have the constitution which we're all very familiar with and within that the married family is sort of put up on a, on a pedestal. You can't enact legislation that will cause any damage to the married family or certainly that will encourage people not to marry so you have to bear that in mind with any legislation that's enacted. So if people choose just to live together as opposed to marry um, and for many reasons they may do that you know maybe somebody can't marry they're, they're currently married or you know they're they're not divorced something like that or for whatever moral or principled reasons they have not to marry um, they, but they want to live together in an intimate co- intimate relationship together they the biggest differences will be if in the event of their relationship breaking down or if one of them dies they would not have anything similar to the um
3: Inheritance automatic law, automatic
4: so. rights okay. that a married couple would have. So I suppose the the big one, yes, would be inheritance. So if one person dies and you know you're not talking about anything kind of um messy in terms of a, a breakdown or anything like that. If one person dies and they're not married, but they have been living together for a long time they, until very recently, they had nothing. They had no automatic right to claim against the person's estate. So obviously the person could leave you. they if, yeah, if they made a will, if okay. they made a will. But for example, if they died without a will, um, they there would have been no automatic entitlement for a cohabitant to make any claim against the estate legislation that was um, enacted in 2010 and came into effect on the 1st of January twenty eleven, 2011 um, changed that slightly so it allows now for within six months of the grant probate being issued allows for a cohabitant a qualified cohabitant um, which is a whole other uh, creature which I'll mention in a second um, is, is able to go to court and make a claim against the estate in the event that they either maybe have not been properly provided for or that they have not been provided for at all. Now That said, there's no guarantee that they'll Mm -hmm. get anything. They will be weighed up by the court. There's very little case law. Mm -hmm. We don't know really what the courts are doing with it because when I was doing research, all I could find were two cases that were reported. One dealt with a redress claim and the other dealt with a a, um, succession claim. And in that case, um, the person in question was given an award and that was sort of neat in a way, this case. It uh, went to the High Court. The woman who died had never been married and had no children. So there was nobody else sort of competing making, Competing, yeah, exactly. Okay. The, the people who were, because she died without a valid will in place, um, her, under the rules of intestacy, her siblings were up for... Getting the pot essentially, mm-hmm. um, the goodies, but yeah. um, he her partner um took a case on the grounds that you know he had lived in, with her and cared for her for a long number of mm-hmm. years, um, and he was successful, and ultimately it was more down to the fact that they were able to. Award them two properties, they happened to equate to about forty five percent. We don't know if that would be used as a rule of thumb down the line in other case law. Well, we just don't know there's mm-hmm. very, very little use of this legislation. So it makes some some impact for cohabitants, you know, that they now have the right to apply, but they are limited. It has to be within a very short time frame. You know, six months is not a very long time if you're grieving.
0: No, you know, uh, to You'd actually want to be very on the ball to get. You, yeah,
4: you yeah. Um, There's a few other little small things that I came across which I thought were odd. If if somebody's divorced mm. and if, when you're divorced, your rights succession are also extinguished because you're no longer married. But at the same time, the person who's looking after the estate is obliged to find you as a divorcee, find you and notify you that the person is dead. So if you are interested in making no, a claim against the estate, then, you know, the, you have to kind of be given the option. Mm. It's the other way around. If you're a cohabitant, you have, to, you find have them. to find them, OK, you have to notify them. And if you don't do that within the six months and they go ahead and they set, settle out the estate as per the rules, that's it. You have no claim. You can't once you've passed that time limit, once you haven't made the proper notifications to the proper people, you can't make any more. Mm. You know, that's it. You're 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 done. Um, as I said earlier on, the people who are limited in their claims are what I call qualified cohabitants. Mm. So when they were drawing up this legislation um, they decided they, they defined cohabitants and the big long list I mean you're talking about having to kind of prove almost very very intimate details about your relationship you know how do you present yourself to other people you know what's the degree of financial dependence things like that. Um, the the length of time you're together. Length time, well, the length of time you're together is what Determines what moves you from being a, just a cohabitant to a qualified okay. cohabitant. If you have kids, it's two years. If you're if you don't have children, it's five.
0: You have to be. Living oh, really? Together. With the yeah. kids, you don't automatically go qualified. Oh no. Okay. Oh no,
4: no you still have to be there for two years.
0: Okay. Um, Show so that you're serious about the commitment. Absolutely.
4: No, I mean there's there's logic in that too. Mm. And I mean when they when they were drafting this legislation or when they were thinking about drafting it, um, the Law Reform Commission did a lot of work in 2006 on this and. One of the key things, the messages that came through from that report over and over was, you know, they didn't want for, you know, anyone who happens to fall into living together, people who are not really in a committed relationship Mm. to necessarily automatically have rights rights against each other and things like that. You know, you have to to balance that out. I suppose there is public policy issues there, but um, they... In order to make any claims under the legislation as it stands, generally speaking, you have to have these minimum time limits um, put down and also you have to um, have, you know, prove a number, you have to prove that your relationship sort Mm. of fits the bill, you know, that passes this threshold. Something that a married couple would never have have to do. do. For them it is enough to prove that you have been into the registry office or have gone to church and have married.
0: We're going to have to move to the next segment fairly soon but did you you make any policy recommendations or did you come up with any, um, yeah, kind of uh, recommendations for reform yourself or was that part of the research?
4: What struck me was the LRC as it had did a very comprehensive report back in 06 made a huge number of recommendations an awful lot of which were not brought in mostly to do with taxation things like that with capital gains tax with a capital acquisitions tax things like that without any explanation when it was brought into when the legislation was being put brought forward in the Dáil it was just said no we're not doing that you know we're, we're um we're, we're it's just we're not bringing in the taxation recommendations we are going to bring in the redress scheme we are going to bring in um, recognition of cohabitation agreements but beyond that we're not doing any more without any further explanation every so often someone asks a question are we going to improve the situation for our cohabitants in relation to taxation against each other things like that and the stock answer seems to be oh with the constitution with the the, um, position of the married family it will be too onerous um, it will be too difficult to try and get a register of people who maybe are living together it will be too difficult to administer and they so it's not a legislative priority basically so um, you could argue that you know in 2011 they had the perfect opportunity to do that and they chose not to and they don't seem to be in any any uh, hurry to do it now. So.
0: Okay, well, dear, you've raised an awful lot of issues there. Maybe we we'll, will give writing to the local TDs cohabitants. If there are many of you out there, you can you 16%. can contact Law and Justice at ninety eight point three FM and uh, state your case. And and you know we'll get dear <laughs> uh, to Keller on to advocate on your behalf. Dear thanks so much for Thank coming so in. Much, Jane, really here. appreciate it. I'm Mulcahy and I'm here at a cafe in Smithfield in Dublin with Maura Butler from the Association for Criminal Justice Research and Development. The ACJRD is holding its annual conference this Friday the 6th of October on the Brexit impact on criminal justice cooperation in Ireland. Hi Maura, thanks very much for joining me today. Can you tell me a little bit about the ACJRD, Maura?
5: The ACJRD has been in existence for an excess of 20 years. It was initially set up by people in the criminal justice sector. Sector. They wanted to have cooperation amongst themselves in relation to discussing policy matters outside of the pressures of their normal daily work. So our patron is, is Judge Moriarty of, of, of the, the High Court and he was one of the founding members. So I've been fortunate to be the chairperson of this organisation now for almost 10 years. We, we have representatives from all of the players in the criminal justice system and that really helps the, the quality of the work that we do when we try in whatever way we can through seminars and conferences to influence policy um, in, in, in the criminal justice sector.
0: And Maura, would you say there has been a change in the attitude of the criminal justice system over the last few years towards interagency working and that type of thing? Oh, very clearly, yeah. I mean,
5: there's a very definitive partnership, for example, between the Irish Prison Service and and the Probation Service, and even to the point of they having joint strategy documentation that they they produce. I, I think that the criminal justice system, per se, is more open to hearing from, say, researchers like yourself and uh, others doing their PhD, as to what they perceive as being necessary
0: to move the criminal justice system into a 21st century space. And to improve outcomes, hopefully, for the the offenders themselves and society more generally, would you say? Oh, well, clearly, yeah, yeah. Not, not, not just the offenders themselves, but also
5: victims of crime. and, and uh, but, but so that society in general has uh, better confidence and more confidence in the criminal justice system as they perceive it, because sometimes the media can actually hype up some of the negative pieces. Sure. And
0: so, Maura, you've a very exciting-sounding event coming up. It's your 20th annual conference, and you chose as your topic, the Brexit impact on criminal justice and cooperation in Ireland. So how did you come up with that as, as your topic? I
5: actually got involved in this conversation myself early this year and even towards the end of last year when I was kindly invited to uh, the University of Northumbria in Newcastle where they were putting a paper together, uh, Professor Tim Wilson and and two of his colleagues, Gemma Davis and and Adam Jackson, who are going to be speakers at our conference uh, on Friday. But they were putting documentation together for the House of Commons and they, they wanted an Irish perspective on... What what did we think or what were we concerned about around Brexit? So I happened to be invited to to be in that conversation. And on returning to Ireland, I thought, well, I'm going to ask my colleagues in in, in the ACGRD Council, what about us actually unpicking that from from, from an Irish perspective? You know, With with our mission and vision um, in mind, I mean, our vision statement is innovation and justice. Our mission, ACGRD, wants to inform the development of policy and practice and justice. So clearly... Brexit is huge and it's huge for everybody but we were conscious that maybe not a lot of people were thinking about it from a criminal justice context. For us in the sector it's it's very obvious as to why we need to have a look at what what is it going to be like when Northern Ireland as part of the UK is out of Europe and and how is that going to impact the commission of crime, the way we deal with it and and is it going to undermine all of that cooperation that has been born in the wake of the good friday agreement and, and, and then there's also that, that european context and and so important to acknowledge what has developed in, in our systems through that connection with the eu and and, and is there going to be rollback on, on on that now and just just to ask those questions and as with all of our conferences what we like to ensure is that we have a, a discussion so that the policy makers and those who are going to be affected by such policy are in the same room, can have a conversation and possibly have a construction of information that, that will, will help the process. Um, we're very aware that the Department of Justice have already been working on this for quite a long time, clearly so, so has the Department of Foreign Affairs, but we, we, we needed to have a discourse that, that would make those conversations
0: accessible to everybody. And I suppose it makes sense to have the conference this year now before we know exactly what's going to be part of the Brexit agreement so that we can hopefully inform... People are further afield as well about the impact on the island of ireland
5: but, but even, even just to to raise those questions as to what what is it likely to i mean it is a bit of a crystal ball in fairness i mean no, nobody quite knows where, where this is going and that's a very very nervous place for anybody within the context of of policy building and planning ahead so that in itself actually made it quite difficult to pull this conference together because a lot of people are nervous of saying well I think this is the way it's going to go because that's like pinning your views to to, to the wall and what if that doesn't doesn't happen and and, and that's got potential reputational damage. So we we were very, very grateful to those people who have stepped up to speak at this conference. We are most definitely going to be employing our Chatham House rule as as, as we will do um, at most conferences and we have the option of that. But I think this year, I mean, in fairness to those people who are prepared to to get involved in the realm of conjecture, where we're ordinary in in a certainty
0: type of space. Yeah, to protect them, I was going to ask about that because yeah, I can imagine they wouldn't fancy being criticized if they did predict something might happen and then went completely the opposite way. I think I think they'd be well placed now to handle any criticism. I mean they, they, these, these
5: people are extraordinarily experienced and, and, and so so I don't think I don't think protection might be the right word, but I think respect really because I mean it it, it it takes a courageous person to step up and to talk about something where the policy landscape is as uncertain as it is in the UK and Ireland and Europe right now about the whole Brexit thing. Nobody
0: knows what's going to happen so Maura can you tell us who will be speaking at the conference maybe a few of the speakers and what they might be um, addressing in their talks
5: we're going to have the minister for justice launching the conference we're very grateful to Charlie Flanagan for having made that time to do that for us and we're hugely honored that we're going to have the British ambassador to Ireland Her Majesty's Ambassador uh, Robin Harnett uh, closing the conference We're also um, delighted that, as well as having Jimmy Martin, the Assistant Secretary um, from the Department of Justice, we're we're going to have Therese Blanchett, and and she's Director of Justice and Home Affairs Council Legal Service. Um, So having that European perspective is extraordinarily important. We've got a plethora of other plenary speakers, including uh, colleagues of mine in in, in my legal world, Ray Briscoe and and, uh, Hugh Dockery from the DPP's office and CSSO, respectively. Mary Clare-Maney from Revenue is going to be speaking, and and Brian Gormley is the director of the Northern Irish Committee on the Administration of Justice, and his perspective is going to be an, an NGO one. And then what we'd like to do is to pick up all all of the themes in in the plenaries in a a workshop context and the actual workshops are going to cover European arrest warrants, uh, anticipated changing in the EU funding landscape which is something that's really important to our members because what's going to happen with all this interreg type funding into the future Community sanctions and, and mobility within the European Union, counter-terrorism, radicalism, the impact for customs cooperation, s- selected responses from um, a UK perspective, but this is going to focus on regulatory crime within a financial context. And and then the... the um, free movement of people um, we're going to have Professor McCall for, from, from uh, Queen's talking on, on that so, so a very broad range of topics and people who go to, go to the conference will get a choice of one of four workshops in the afternoon or one of four ro- workshops in the morning but the, the strength of our conferences is that we always have um PhD students and the like were uh, rapporteurs at the conference. They take notes, and these papers will be available in the in the early new year. Um, and we, we were lucky that we got sponsorship from the Irish Prison Service in relation to the publication of that document.
0: Uh, it sounds like a fascinating event. I'm sorry, I'll miss it myself this time because I've rapporteured in the past. And who, who would you say would find this conference then interesting? I presume policymakers, lawyers, students, anyone else. Is is there something all, in the audience for everyone? Would you all, say all of that? Yeah, because I'm. I'm and we do we do try to to have
5: the broadest possible um, discussion. And even, even the manner in which the workshops are delivered, the, the presenters will usually do 20 minutes, with the rest of the hour uh, being made available to the participants. So, if you are working in any one of those areas, you have the opportunity with with with, with other people, and sometimes for people who are on the opposite side of, of 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 your particular position, to tease out all the possibilities and possibly walk away having learned a whole lot. Um, so that's my that's my hope for everybody. Okay. And and it's also a fantastic networking space as well. And and, and, and to, to actually Actually, had that multidisciplinary, um, you know, chance every, every year to get everybody together to talk about something that's really, really big, and this is really, really big, and 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 it's, it's kind of slightly scary because we don't quite know what it's going to be like.
0: I'm Jane Mulcahy and you're listening to Law and Justice. That was Maura Butler from the ACJRD giving an insight into what people can expect at the conference on Brexit and the impact that it will have on the criminal justice system. That's on in the Spencer Hotel on Friday and will run until about 5pm. There'll be a, a wine reception afterwards while members of the ACJRD will be taking part in the AGM. And Maura's right, it is a good networking opportunity for people and uh, an interesting, uh, I suppose, event to consider what might be the ramifications for criminal justice and the agencies and the rights of offenders and all that type of thing on the island of Ireland post-Brexit. There's another very interesting event on in Dublin um, at the weekend hosted by the Law Society of Ireland and it's their annual human rights conference 2017. They're are a range of topics going to be covered, including the historical and legal context of prison in society. There's a talk called Balancing Act, question mark, victim and offender's rights in the Irish Penal System, Respect and Protection of Offenders' Rights, Social and Legal Implications of Prison, and then there's a personal account of life in prison following release. So the speakers will include Minister Charlie Flanagan, who's Minister for Justice and Equality, Vivian Gearin, Director of the Irish Probation Service, Professor Mary Rogan, who I spoke with at the on the last law and justice show um about solitary confinement. She's uh, an associate professor in law at Trinity. Joan Dean who's the secretary of ADVIC and she'll be representing victims perspective at the weekend and their human rights and how decisions in relation I presume to parole and um, in cases of homicide might impact on survivors and uh, and the like. Uh, Deirdre Malone the executive director of the Irish Penal Reform Trust will be giving her perspective and then as mentioned there'll be an ex-offender from the SAIL project. So for those who have an interest in criminal justice matters and how that intersects with human rights. I think it'll be a very interesting event to attend. That's all from us today, folks. I'm Jane Mulcahy. You're listening to 98.3 FM. And this was Law and Justice. We will leave you with Europe's, the final countdown in honour of Brexit. It's a bit bit of cheese to set us on, on the right direction for the evening. See you in two weeks' time.